Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. If you want to get out of those small bras, you're going to have to do the same exercise and technique I do. There's an exercise? Of course there is. You hold your arms out like this and you say, I must, I must, I must increase my bust. I must, I must. I must increase my bust. Does that really work? I'm living proof. Now come on, get up, get up. Get a memorable up. scene there from the new Are You There, God? It's me, Margaret. One of the titles competing for a spot on our list of the top five films of 2023 so far. Those exercises must really work, Adam, because it's got a shot at my list. Joining us this week, the Chicago Tribune's Michael Phillips. It's all ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting, and welcome to Michael Phillips. You know it's a big show when Michael is here from the Chicago Tribune, and I know you really would much rather be here than, say, at Cannes. I would. It's hard to—this is the worst FOMO I've felt about about a festival I haven't visited in many years now, but uh, I used to go for a few years, and yeah, it's really hard to hear about the Scorsese and— you know, the new Jonathan Glazer film and uh, the fact that somebody found a really good uh, Lebanese restaurant uh, pretty close uh, to the Palais, all that. Yeah. And in fact, I'm going to go now. So I'll, I'll see you guys. <laughs> oh, no, we lost them. Hop on. Hop on the Concord. I'm sure a seat is waiting for you. Michael is here for a special occasion. We are sharing our top five films of 2023 so far. But before we get to all of that, we did want to give you a brief reminder about how you can help us reach new listeners. We want to thank Apple Podcast users JPalm65, Comforted by Food, VSO212, and Aussie Film Geek, all of whom left some kind words for us this past week when they left reviews over at Apple Podcasts. Here's what we heard from Comforted by Food. Every film nerd needs film nerd friends to talk about movies with, and in the absence of real film nerd friends, I have Adam and Josh. I'm a devoted weekly listener since 2019, and I found out my cross-country cousin is also a listener when you read his comments on the air. What fun to be part of a community that includes my dear younger cousin to boot. How about that, Adam? Keeping families together. I mean, that wasn't part of the original mission statement, no. I'm, I assume, but... Good to see that's happening anyways. Please do share your rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so we can find those new listeners. 
I just want to add that I too am often comforted by food, perhaps too often. And Michael, I'm sure comforted by food would have mentioned you, but you're not nerdy enough. You're too cool. You're really too cool the, for film spot. Only you, who's willingly going back to Iowa, would actually consider uh-huh. me too cool. The guy from Wisconsin. I mean, that's these are not. I don't Good know. Point. Are they cool states? I, 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 I don't know. Yeah, what, they are not. Where do they Where do they fall on the cool ranking? Well, we'll save that top five list for another time. Yeah, we are going to get into something more fun on this show. Our favorite movies of the year so far. We're coming to you here with about a week left in the month of May. We're at the halfway point or close enough. Let's dive in. Let's talk about the movies that have stood out so far this year. Do either of you have any opening remarks? Anything you want to say about forming your list? Looking back on the year, has it been a good year, a bad year? Anything? Or should we just get into our number five choices? Better than I thought, seriously. I I mean, we're all seeing things on slightly different timelines. And I think that's probably only going to get more more that way as we Mm -hmm. adapt our lives to whatever this hybrid form of living we're living, because I'm still working at home more than I ever did before the pandemic. And, uh, you know, streaming uh, is part of my life. Film going is part of my life. It's all, I, I just get the feeling that we're all on different timelines, even more than we were. But you know, I was seeing things coming that that months earlier had premiered at Sundance, and all. And you know, uh, I it was it was very easy to come up with ten films so far that I felt like, hey, not bad, not big films necessarily. Although I have one surprise in that regard, my the one Hollywood schlockbuster that I unabashedly enjoyed, which I'm not going to tell you what it is because I, you know, the, that's a suspense tactic. See, see what I'm doing there? Yeah, I'm, not, I'm, I'm going to say you're going to yeah, save that. I know, but you will be surprised. I would, I would say it's a solid year as well. If I compare it just to last year, it probably evens out. Last year at this time, I had a clear movie in After Yang that had a shot at my number one of the year already at this point. Don't have that yet, but I have a handful of five that I like better than maybe last year's two through five at this point. So I think that all evens out. And yeah, to Michael's point, you know, there are 10 good films I could list that I have seen that I'm excited about that I would suggest people see or catch up with at this point um, and feel very good about the top five I've got. Also to Michael's point, this is a case for me. And we're always doing some catch up when we have these check-ins, whether it's the end of the year or the halfway point, there's going to be movies we need to see that we overlook. But looking at my list, I've got a pair of bookends. I've got movies that I saw in the number five and number one slots that I saw when they came out. Otherwise, I've got three movies I just saw in preparation for this list. And a couple of them are still in theaters, but have been out for a while and might be hard to catch at the moment. So I'm going to be praising some films that are tough to see, which is never fun, but should be coming to VOD or some streaming platform soon, hopefully. Let's jump in. Is your surprise right off the bat here, Michael, or are you going to build up to that? What's your number five? No, my, my number five is not a surprise. I've been, I've been, you know, kind of recommending it right and left. It's, it's um, on Hulu. It's the romantic comedy, Rye Lane. Do you know Rye Lane? Have you seen it? Mm-hmm. An honorable mention for me. Oh, good. A whole bunch of good, good work. Yeah, I, I just think this is Rain Alan Miller's feature debut. It's set in South London, a great, uh, really, really, really sprightly romance, romantic comedy about two twenty-somethings played by Vivian O'Para and David uh, Johnson uh, that 
has kind of the same spirit as some romantic comedies from about, I don't know, a decade or more back, um, 500 Days of Summer, uh, Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist. It's got that same kind of energy, but it's also got a, an entirely different personality just because we're getting a slice of black London life that we I haven't seen uh, given this sort of what could have been just a standard issue rom-com treatment, but just uh, just about everything about it. I think is a is a is a, a step or two above, and uh, you know it's it's a really really sharp talent behind the camera. It's a pretty good script, I think, elevated into a really good movie. So I'm I don't really know anybody I've recommended it to that said, yeah, I don't know what the hell you were talking about. I think you know it's seventy seven minutes of fun. What do you want? I mean, I hate to sound like a just a marketing hack, but it's seventy seven <laughs> minutes of fun. <laughs> That's right. I, think I did see I that mean. on the poster, Michael. Put it on the poster. <laughs> So go on, spill the tea. What happened? She cheated on me with my best friend. Wait, is that? <laughs> no, no, I need to figure this out because it's baffling. You dumped this funny, clever, successful accountant for this jobless human bin fire. <laughs> my work precedes me. <laughs> I am with you and enjoying this movie, and I'm glad you picked it because that gives us an opportunity to do something that I've been meaning to do. And that suggestion came in from a longtime listener, Brendan in Washington, D.C., who said, not sure if you all have checked out Rye Lane on Hulu yet. It's a first film that I think definitely needs to be up for Golden Brick consideration for this year. It's a charming rom-com set in South London with vibes of the Before Trilogy and Here You Go, 500 Days of Summer. It feels like a really stunning achievement for a first-time filmmaker to make something that feels on par with those films. Hope you check it out and put it up for consideration. If you haven't already thought about it, well, Brendan and Michael, consider Rye Lane officially on the Golden Brick shortlist. It deserves to be there. All right. With those three recommendations, then I will absolutely put it on my watch list because that's one that I haven't gotten to yet. Instead, at number five for me is a film we heard from at the top of the show. Are you there, God? It's me, Margaret, which I think has really connected with so many audiences, just seeing the enthusiasm in polls we've put out there. And it sounds like it didn't connect so much at the box office, yet the people who have seen it are just in love with this thing. So I don't know what's going on there. I don't have to care. I'm not worried about the business. I'm just worried about the films themselves. It does make me want to shout even louder that People have to catch up with this thing. And maybe it's something that they'll do at home. It seems perhaps like a movie you can easily watch at home rather than on the big screen. But I do have to say there is some sharp visual humor here from the director, Kelly Freeman Craig, who made The Edge of Seventeen, which we both loved. Adam, when that came out, her debut, uh, there's a great <laughs> shot when um, – Margaret here, played by Abby Ryder Fortson, is with her mom, played by Rachel McAdams, at the department store. She's insisted to her mom they have to go bra shopping, yet she's horrified at the prospect of actually doing this. And there's a wonderful shot of Margaret, I think, in kind of the left foreground of the frame, and this mannequin wearing a bra looming over her in the top right of the frame, just capturing um, the tension that she's feeling there. So nice little visual touches like that. But this is a delight because of the material, right? Because of Judy Bloom's 1970 novel for young readers, I think the film does an excellent job of being honest about how a preteen 
would feel and honoring their qualms, you know, and, and and putting those first and foremost in front and just being honest about a kid's experience. I don't think we get a lot of that at movies. And I think that's probably something that audiences who have seen this are responding to. Another thing people have praised, which I do think is is good, but it's distinct from the book, and maybe because a talent like McAdams is involved, it really opens up and expands the experience of Margaret's mother mm-hmm. here. And that's a plus because we start to see this era, you know, 1970 through her eyes as well, what it's like to live at this time for an adult woman, especially as she moves from New York City to the suburbs. What we do lose, though, and having just read the book for the first time in the last couple of months, is the precision of the perspective that the narration in the book provides. And I think Fortson gives a wonderful performance as Margaret. Her, her flabbergasted face throughout this is such a gem. But she's almost too nice. The Margaret in the book is very sardonic. Naive, yes, but very sardonic. And I just loved that voice. Things are a little sweeter in this adaptation, which, you know, is fine. Again, we don't get a lot of movies like this. I think it's it's a very lovely tone to bring to this story. So it's a change. I'm not complaining about just a distinction that's probably worth noting. Bottom line is, if you haven't seen this, get out to it. If you can find a theater that still has it, give it your money otherwise via streaming some way or another so that we get more little miracles like this moving forward. Are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. I'm here to speak to you today about your changing bodies. The blood is released through the vagina. Please, do this one thing for me. Don't you just be normal and regular like everybody else? Just please, 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 please. What I yeah, it's definitely worth catching up with. I was more of a... Tales of a fourth grade nothing super fudge guy back in grade school. I have to confess, I never did read then or now. Are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. But I'm curious to now having finally caught up with the movie. And I think this is a film, to my surprise, that's going to have three or four moments, Josh, that might be in competition for most moving moment of the year Mm. when we get to our rap party. And the reason why is because... Those moments are relatively restrained. Yes, they are important beats in the film, but the movie doesn't hammer you over the head with them. It doesn't feel like it's trying to tug at your heartstrings. And I thought it similarly showed restraint in the comedy as well, which you touched on. There was a moment early on where I sort of knew exactly what was coming or I thought I knew what was coming. And it's that opening where then they're going to move out of the city. And I don't know if it's in the narration or if it's something another character says, but somebody says something like, well, how bad can New Jersey be or something? And, you know, any other film would have smash cut to something cliched looking and appearing about New Jersey. The movie did not do that, fortunately. So I'm with you. I think it's one to see. And I do love not only the McAdams performance, but Abby Ryder Fortson. I already kind of know who I'm scribbling in on my breakthrough performance of the year on my Chicago film critics ballot. It's early, but she's going to be in the running. Yeah. And the performances across the board are great. The other kids and Kathy Bates as Margaret's grandmother as well. Yeah. I think what you're saying, uh, I'm with you all the way on that. I'll talk a little bit about where I disagree with some of these points because I like this film even more than Josh. So um, I I think it's actually, 
I see. I take the point on on the changes when you redirect the authorial voice of the book, right? It's all Margaret, and it is it is snarkier and sort of like shorter tempered in a way in the book. But uh, but I think there's scenes that that are really pretty tough minded for a film like this, where you get suddenly you get a moment in the restaurant where you have the the formerly very unsympathetic sort of frenemy you know, friend group leader uh, having kind of a crisis in the bathroom and her sort of, you know, cool verging on cold um, and easily thrown mother have like a really a tense scene. And that, that I just haven't seen a mm-hmm. scene like that in any American movie in ever, you know, mm-hmm. it just makes, it breaks my heart for the younger me that I never came anywhere near a Judy Bloom book when I'm, when I really needed it the most. <laughs> <laughs> which is just trying to figure I had out, the same reaction, you know? Michael. Yeah. And obviously I stayed away from it. You know, that was the girl's book, right? And now reading it, I think of how helpful it would have been to me as a boy to have read something like that. Right. So, so yeah, maybe, maybe those sort of lines are, are being broken a little bit and a movie like this might help. Well, I'm going to do what I like to do here on Film Spotting. I'm going to bring everything down. I'm going to just take the mood down to a crashing halt, something really grim and dour. Not that the two choices you guys just mentioned aren't wrestling with deeper questions, certainly, but they're, they're both pretty much feel good movies and there is nothing feel good about my number five choice for film of the year so far. And before I say it, my other bit of prefacing here is you referenced Josh Comparing to last year's list, I didn't go back and look at the titles from last year, but I do remember very vividly that I had four movies I felt really strong about, and you could have just thrown it at a dartboard for my number five choice. It's not quite that way this year, but it's it's close. I really was hoping earlier today that our shtick was top fours instead of top fives, <laughs> because I had, to, I had to grind this one out a little bit, but the movie that's in my fifth slot is the film we talked about last week on the show. It's Paul Schrader's Master Gardener, okay. starring Joel Edgerton as a meticulous horticulturalist who is also a former white nationalist. And as I said, we talked about it last week. I don't want to regurgitate our conversation from that show, but just in the past couple of days, a piece was posted in the New York Times that I haven't had a chance to really dive into yet, but it's by Esther Zuckerman, and she focuses on the key actors at the center of this Schrader trilogy, the three men in a room who are writing journals and struggling with punishment and redemption. So she's got quotes and gets insight and perspective from Ethan Hawke, of course, from First Reformed, and then Oscar Isaac from The Card Counter, and now Edgerton in Master Gardener. And she says this that I thought was fascinating to hear and to hear Ethan Hawke consider this as he is performing, as he was performing the minister character from First Reform. In these films, Schrader echoes both the French filmmaker Robert Bresson with deliberate references to Pickpocket and Diary of a Country Priest and himself. Travis Bickle scribbled in one of these notebooks in Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver, which Schrader wrote. So did Willem Dafoe's drug dealer in Light Sleeper, which Schrader wrote and directed. Even when you're shooting it, you're aware there's a meta thing happening where you realize like, right, this is like Travis Bickle. This is like Willem, Hawk said. You feel like, right, I'm part of this lineage of this human being's work. The piece also touches on something else that that resonated with me. And I think it's the reason why I keep 
coming back to this movie in my mind and why, among other reasons, I really badly want to revisit it. And it's this quote from Edgerton. He says, I think I probably got the same speech that Ethan got and the same speech that Oscar got. Edgerton said, explaining it wasn't the place for an actor to explore their bag of tricks and create flourish within character, but rather reduce themselves to sort of a conduit of stillness to everything moving and swirling around them. I did appreciate Edgerton's performance, I think significantly more than you, Josh, but I think he does get at clearly what Schrader was going for. I think Edgerton hits in the performance the notes that Schrader needed him to, as described there, which is that that stillness, that that's what sticks with me more than any of the incendiary <laughs> and and provocative, maybe shamelessly provocative ideas at times. It's the stillness of Edgerton's performance in that face. Yeah, well, that's the Brisson influence, too, right? And how he would handle actors. Absolutely. Michael, where did where did you come down on Master Gardner? Oh, I like it. It's it's uh, it's in my runner up list that I'm going to devote an hour and a half to when we're done with all this stuff. But, um, <laughs> uh, no, I, yeah, I think the first hour of Master Gardner is as all, right up there with First Reformed. Uh, and I think card counters, you know, equally, we're seeing some problems with all three, very few with First Reformed. And I... I don't really know if the second half of Master Gardener is uh, nearly as sure of itself uh, and where it's going in its deliberate provocations as the as the first half. But uh, I would argue, with though, Josh, with you in the, in that without giving it away, you're getting about the happiest possible ending a film built around uh, a reformed neo Nazi can possibly get uh, in in Master Gardener. Yes. So uh, I, I don't think you're bringing. In fact, you brought my mood up. Just by 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 your placement here, so I don't think it, I don't think I it's that it. you know that doesn't give too much away. No. I hope <laughs> no, it, it doesn't. And I I said as much last week on the show actually when I suggested it's the most hopeful of all three endings in this trilogy. But let's admit, bleaker in general than Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, or Rye Lane. Your number four <laughs> film of the year so far. My number four, Golden Brick, has been mentioned here, and I'm going to reiterate, renominate Rodeo, which I did talk about on the show a while back. So I won't spend too much time on this, but it is a French film from director Lola Kivaran making her debut and takes place within the world of underground motocross in the suburbs of Paris. Wonderful debut from a filmmaker, Kivaran, who makes this just shifts gears in so many different ways from a verite sense of chaos early on to these more stable shots of the riders on these motorbikes that suggest that they only find a place of peace when they're on the road doing this. And then other uses of the camera and editing that put us directly in the flow with these riders. So the filmmaking is impressive, but man, does this feature an incredible lead performance from newcomer Julie Ledru, who is ferocious, who has a magnetism that is completely natural, yet she also does some incredible acting in this, especially as the story opens up. She plays uh, a young woman who is trying to escape her family, falls in with uh, a group of bikers who are stealing bikes and selling them, selling stolen parts. And she's trying to find her place and identity there. Part of that group is the girlfriend of the gang's leader who she develops a relationship with. And there are notes of longing. There are notes of melancholy in those scenes. So I really think LeDrew is a standout. So you've got two 
new exciting talents featured in this film rodeo that's part of the reason why i did nominate it for the golden brick and i'm thinking at this point it's probably available via streaming yeah it's vod for sure on a few different platforms and still it's one i badly need to see i will be watching it on one of these it's on amazon prime for rent youtube and also voodoo among a few others michael i somehow went out of order here the esteemed guest is always supposed to lead off a round of picks i come back to you for your number four hold on i just have to make note of that in my ledger because uh, you'll pay for that <laughs> later. Uh, hey, I think we're going to hear this title more than once uh, in this program. In this, pro- do we call it a program? Is it a program? Sure. Yeah, it's got an old-timey feel to it. Okay. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, my my grandmother used to use the word program. She also used the word uh, used yeah. the phrase filling station a lot. But I don't think we need to bring that up. Uh, no. Kelly Reichardt's showing up. That's my number four, and it, it probably could have been higher. I, I don't really. Uh, I don't think anything about this show seriously. So I didn't really think through the, you know, the, uh, the, the niceties, but it, 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 it's something that might well rise higher to the top, uh, by the end of the year. But I, I love Reichert stuff. I, I really loved first cow and this is maybe a tick below. It's, it's a very different, um, set of intentions though. I think, uh, it's also a wonderful reunion with, Reichardt and Michelle Williams, and they, they just work magic together. I just think they, they speak a kind of intuitive language director, performer that just brings out, you know, a, a remarkable amount of shading in in this very simple story of a Portland sculptor, Lizzie, played by Williams, simply getting ready for her gallery show under a fair amount of low and medium level stress. And, and that's basically the first comedy Reichardt's made full on Mm-hmm. In its way, since Old Joy, seventeen years ago, I think you, you you can I think you can probably label it that. But like everything with Riker, you can, there's no point in labeling it because there's so much interesting sidewinding wit in all her work, and there's a certain amount of relational drama, very subtle in showing up that that creates the glue that makes us stick with it. And uh, I, I don't know, I just haven't seen a film this patiently devoted to an artist's process that just makes you see the creation happen in real time. And you see what this prickly character, Lizzie is dealing with, even when she's not being interrupted or wondering why her equally, if not more talented artist landlord played by Hong Chow hasn't fixed the hot water heater in her place. And uh, it's just a, it's just a, you know, a, a very human scaled serial comedy, let's say. And I, I, with all her work, I just, I'm just happy to be there. And it has a, as a way of lowering my pulse rate, even if the character in the middle of it, in this case, hmm. uh, does not suffer from a low pulse rate. She just suffers from microaggressions, uh, real or perceived. <laughs> well, there will be some more validation for that choice here later in the show. But right now, I have to thank you for the perfect segue into my number four film of the year because this movie is one I've compared very favorably to a movie you just mentioned, one of Kelly Reichert's early films. My film is The Eight Mountains, and it belongs in any conversation or on any list of films that 
deal astutely with the topic of male friendship. The Eight Mountains is from the team that made Broken Circle Breakdown, which was Oscar nominated back in, I think, 2012. This film, The Eight Mountains, was the winner of the jury prize at the 2022 Cannes Film Festival. So just a year ago, Felix Van Groningen and Charlotte Vandermeersch got that award. I think they shared it with EO at the time. This film stars Luca Marinelli, who I had to look up. I didn't remember him from the Gina Prince-Bythewood movie, The Old Guard. He's one of the characters that's on that team under Charlize Theron's character. He's also Martin Eden in the film, Martin Eden. And then I had never seen Alessandro Borghi before, but he also gives a really fine performance. They are the older versions of these two men who met as boys, one Bruno, Borghi's character, who is from the mountain region, and Pietro, Marinelli's character, his family would just come from the city to this location. And they developed a really deep connection. And then, like happens often with friends, male and female, they go their separate ways. But they do come back together again. And the film is occupied primarily with this time now as grown men. I joked on Letterboxd in my blurb that this is on paper, a film that probably shouldn't be for me. It should be a film I, I'm not into that much because it's about mountain climbing, cheese making, and beard growing, which are all things I'm not into, though that last one is only one, you know, it's not by choice. I'd love, I'd love to grow a beard. <laughs> I'd love to have the follicles of, of someone like a Michael Phillips, who I'm looking at right now with, with all sorts of envy. Of course, the movie isn't really about beard making, though both men just have these these luminously bushy beards that, that also <laughs> made me envious. I'm not an outdoors guy is what I'm saying, which longtime listeners of the show certainly know by now. But what I am into are stories that deal with male friendship. And of course, I, I have my share of my own daddy issues to deal with. And this movie is decidedly about that. <laughs> Both of these characters are dealing with their own paternal issues as well. I said most of it takes place in the Italian Alps, so you get lots of scenes scaling mountains or just sitting on hills or by lakes surrounded by mountains or lush green grass. It's wondrous and it's gorgeous, but the filmmakers also cue you into the fact that as wondrous and gorgeous as it is, this is a film about people and their relationships to that landscape, to each other and to the ghosts of their past. And this is also a call back to Riker a little bit doing what she often does. They shoot it in the Academy ratio and Amy Tobin in her rave from Sundance put it really nicely. She said that choice paradoxically renders the landscape even more formidable than it would have been in IMAX and makes one aware of how inadequate any camera is when confronting such massive vistas. Mm. I'll say that appropriate for a movie about male friendship, there's much more that's left unsaid than said the space between those is more vast and mysterious than any of those magnificent landscapes that we get in the eight mountains. Unfortunately, this is one that isn't out yet. I did catch up with it in the past couple of weeks as it came to theaters. It is still, I think in theaters, but it's just not out yet on VOD or streaming. I'm not aware of a DVD release date, but if you happen to be one of those cities, that's still showing it. I do recommend the eight mountains. Another one 
that got past me. How about you, Michael? Have you uh, seen same, this? and it's, um, it's breaking my heart. I mean, I really, I really, really regret not having caught up with that in time for the show. But uh, it's a lot to recommend. It sounds like from your description, though, Adam, just in terms of you know, its depiction of male friendship, the ideal three man film spotting episode would just be three guys saying, "I don't want to talk about it." You know, just yeah. you know, just basically yeah. just saying, <laughs> "You should just see it." I don't want. We don't, we got nothing to add. <laughs> Let's not let's not someday, get into it. Someday, the thirty second film spotting, it will happen. Okay, we are going to move on to our number three films of the year, and I'm going to restore order to the universe. Michael Phillips, what's your number three? Oh man, I love this film. It's the uh, it's it's the drama called Return to Soul by writer director David Chow. It's a really terrific feature debut. It's a very simple film about a 25 year old French woman of Korean descent who who was born in Seoul and put up for adoption and and has no ties really of any kind to her birth parents or uh, to the country itself. But here she is um, back for uh, a visit with no real clear blueprint or plan in mind to, at the beginning of the film. And as it, as it moves along, and this is kind of where I don't want to give every little plot detail away, uh, she does connect with one of her birth parents and then the other and in ways that I've never seen treated in any picture from any country. Uh, it's also just a, a fascinating kind of push-pull portrait and a really great performance by Park Ji Min as the woman of, of somebody who just has a lifetime of dislocation that she's only now coming to grips with. And uh, th- this film just really, really stands out for me, I, I I think it's I think it's a film I, I, I that that looks as good as it talks. <laughs> it knows when to talk and when to let uh, a really astute set of camera and storytelling approaches take you closer to this woman, Freddie, and then maybe a little further away, and then let the story go way way out of town into the provinces of Korea, other cities, other towns. It's just, it's just a wonderful, wonderful picture. And um, it's, I don't want to say a return to form for Sony Pictures classics because they've been putting out all kinds of films. But all of these films, as we know, struggle in the theaters because it's, the, it's, it's this kind of art house audience that used to, you know, before COVID, this would have made several million dollars in theaters and possibly get a, probably get a foreign language or international uh, film Oscar nomination. And that's sort of up for grabs now. But see it, Return to Soul, it's, it's, it's just a great, stealthy experience. I love it. I don't know, Josh, if your experience or lack of experience with Return to Soul is similar to mine or not. This is a movie that I don't really know what the release timing was. I just know that all of a sudden... At the end of last year, when we were cramming for our top 10 films of the year so far yep. with Michael Phillips and Mariah Gates, all of a sudden this movie I hadn't heard of at all was getting some buzz and appearing on people's lists. And despite that, I wasn't able to fit it in. And then I'm preparing for this list and I'm seeing it again on some lists of 2023. And I'm thinking, okay, this is this is my chance. This is my chance to to force myself to watch it. It's going to be a 2023 film. I don't know what was happening in 2022. Long story short, I ultimately decided 
that I had to think of it as a 2022 film. Now, Michael, you're not you're not subject to the whims of the CFCA or the silly things we do on film spotting. I just ultimately decided that if I was supposed to vote on it last year, that I couldn't consider it a 2023 film. So I I still haven't seen it, but it's a 2023 film for you. I know what you mean. I, I didn't see it in time to make to make it a, a 2022 consideration picture. I just didn't. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it's it was on festival circuits in 2022. A lot of people saw it. A lot. As you say, it ended up on a lot of lists. Um, I don't know. I no apologies for anything that can't be sure seen until early the next year. I didn't see it till February, and uh, uh, I can't yeah. wait to see it a second time. Yeah, no harm in giving it some attention now. It sounds sounds amazing. A movie that did play back, it looks like it made its U.S. debut. We should give some love to our friends Mimi and Vivian and everyone at the Chicago International Film Festival. It looks like that was its U.S. premiere back in October 2022 in the U.S. But you're right, Michael, it did go on to play at the New York Film Festival and a few others and really didn't get an actual limited release until this year, I think, in February. Right. All right, at my number three, let's bring some animation into the mix with Suzume. This is the latest from writer-director Makoto Shinkai, who makes these astonishingly animated fantasias. They're also deeply emotive, incredibly imaginative. I've enjoyed the previous two features of his I've seen, Your Name, Weathering With You. I think Suzume might be my favorite. I'm eager to watch it again and just see where it lands because boy, did I go for this one. It centers around a teenager who's been raised since a young child by her aunt, Suzume, the character, the title character. And on her way to school one day, she encounters this stranger in her seaside town, immediately is infatuated with him, follows him into the mountains where he's investigating this abandoned resort. And she watches him go up to a door that serves as this portal to another dimension. And basically, there's a lot of crazy stuff that goes down. But this guy's in charge of traveling across Japan, closing such doors before these giant malevolent worms emerge that cause what some people think are just weather events, but are really have these deeper fantastical origins that this closer can solve by shutting the doors. A door, just like he said. Impossible! There's no way! Why? You need to close this door, right? Gates open in lonely places where no human hearts remain. And from those gates... Isn't it? Disaster comes. Hi there. You're in the way. Goodbye. This ultimately becomes, for me, and I haven't delved into its reception in Japan, what uh, people are making of it there, but it struck me as a very melancholy reflection on the country's history of natural disasters, especially when you consider that all of the portal sites, almost all of them, I think, have been evacuated due to tsunamis or landslides, something like that. And I just think that lends this, again, a fantasia of real-world application. At the same time, there is a lot of silliness and sweetness to this, which the other two films I've seen have elements of this too. But boy, did I love the decision to make Sauta, the character who is the closer, 
to transform him early on into this rickety three-legged kid's chair. Um, Won't get into the magic that causes that to happen, but it's this kid's chair that belongs to Suzume. It's actually from her childhood. And so you get a lot of physical comedy with this. And then at the end, when we learn more about Suzume's past and the significance of that chair, it too is given huge emotional weight. And so I don't want to make it sound like this this notion of giving a Fantasia an emotional core is new to Shinkai, because it is in Weathering With You, it is in your name. But here in Suzume, it worked for me, I think, the best, in addition to giving you this amazing animation. I mean, you should see these this worm that comes and spreads across the sky, these red tendrils just incredible. That's the sort of stuff I can just sit in front of and let wash over me. But then you have all of these other elements that Shinkai brings as well. This is really top flight animation going on right now. Mm, I can't wait to see it. See, that's the thing. It's like already we've got, this is just a year so far and I've already got like a half a dozen things that uh, I missed and then missed again. But, uh, but uh, you know, it's, uh, that's great to hear. Yeah. It's part of the joy of doing these lists actually is all of the discoveries and hopefully we're providing that for everybody who's listening they've got that growing list of films they need to see i'm pretty sure i'm about to add one of those titles to everybody's list whether or not it sounds like they want to see it or i make a compelling enough case remains to be seen but i'm guessing that 99.9 percent of people listening have not heard of this film have not even heard of it much less seen it It was completely off my radar until just about a week ago. Got a tweet at Film Spotting from at Peppy C Money, who said, Can we as a public nominate films for the Golden Brick Award? Here we go with more talk of debut features and Golden Bricks. I think the debut feature from Franklin Rich, The Artifice Girl, just screams Golden Brick. It's on VOD now. Just wanted to bring it to Film Spotting's attention. Hmm. So, Yes, you can nominate films for the Golden Brick. We make no guarantee that your title will end up on the official shortlist or it'll be a finalist that we vote on. But we absolutely pay close attention to the films that people put on our Golden Brick radar. I read the plot description of this film after seeing this tweet, and I knew I was going to see it before doing this list. Here it is. A team of special agents discover a revolutionary new computer program that uses AI to bait and trap online predators. After teaming up with the program's troubled developer, they soon find that the program, more program talk, though this is new age program talk, Michael, the program is advancing much faster than they could have imagined, resulting in unsettling consequences for the future of technology and mankind. I don't know about you when you hear that. That description suggests to me a very large-scale movie, a thriller, perhaps even. That that makes sense. Its ideas are certainly large-scale, but but that's really it. The team of special agents is two. We don't meet more than four characters in the entire film. We don't witness any predators being trapped or caught, and those unsettling consequences for the future of mankind and technology, oh, they're definitely there. They're just emanating from interactions that all take place within very confined spaces. The whole movie plays out over three chapters, three distinct chapters, but all involving the same characters. The second one occurs in the exact same room we open in 
where the agents are interrogating that developer. The third plays out all within one room of a house. And that's about all I'm going to say about the Artifice Girl and what happens over the course of this movie. It's one I'm sure some will decry as too talky, like we're just getting the philosophical debates about AI that PhD students might have in their dorm room or classroom. And maybe those conversations are best kept there. Or maybe this would have been better served as a play versus a movie. I feel otherwise for several reasons, including what I'd call clearly intentional mise-en-scene, the lighting, the blocking, the editing rhythm, the intimacy and the urgency of those confined spaces is really important, which I don't think we'd get on stage. And it's, it's not just the erudition of the issues being discussed, but the human side, the emotion behind them. And, and there are more reasons I'd make the case for the visual approach and the formal structure of this movie, but I would again reveal too much. The bottom line is it's, it's ideas and it's minimalist approach, I think, make it audacious enough to be considered for the brick. And I said, I knew I was going to check it out as soon as I read the description. That's not because I'm such a sci-fi guy or I'm preoccupied with AI, though I think we're all sort of preoccupied with AI these days, whether we want to be or not. But Josh, this is coming off our recent revisit of her, the incredible Spike Jones film that was so rewarding. And just based on that plot summary, I wondered if there might be a through line from Samantha's developing sentience to the girl we get here, the girl in quotes, whose name is Cherry. And that I'd say is definitely the case. Those films in so many ways could not be more different. Don't get me wrong. This is not her part two, but I would absolutely recommend to watch her and then chase it with the artifice girl and see how the two inform each other and are in dialogue with each other. I really would like to talk more about the AI performance too, the the performance by the girl who is playing the AI character, Tatum Matthews, that is such a key component of this film. But again, I'm going to hold off for now. It's a movie that made me think of Primer as well, Mm. where it's got that DIY, small-scale feel, but just gigantic implications. And it's another one that is on VOD now. We're talking about a monumental transition from digital to physical. Human nature is not something I aspire to. You want to tell us the truth? Sherry isn't human. No more secrets. I can't even tell I'm not human anymore! Hello again. Yeah, I can't wait to see this. That sounds right up my alley. Same, the the same. low budget sci-fi. Yeah, what you're yeah, describing sounds a little like. Remember, do you remember the vast of night that UFO film? That I was little, just thinking about that, Michael. You know, yeah. the, we all praised that. I mean, I just really, I still think about that film, and and you think about how very, very different it is from any other UFO film, large or small, or alien invasion premise or anything. And it's just, it's it's a great reminder that the right director and the right writers can can take the same 88 keys of the piano at their disposal, you know, in movie, in piano, in music terms and find, and find their own melody. You know, it's, it's, it's great. That's a great reminder that, and you don't need much. You need three rooms or in this case, two, it sounds like, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
quick note that you can always find our picks not only for films of the year so far, but all of our top five lists in the archive at filmspotting.net. Just click on lists. Miles! Want to get out of here? Welcome to the Spider Society. I'm Spider-Man. Oh, no way! All of us are. Yes, indeed. We will return to the Spider-Verse next week here on Film Spotting. The sequel to 2018's Into the Spider-Verse comes to theaters next weekend. And this time, as the title suggests, we are going across it, Josh. It sounds fun, even though, as you rightfully pointed out last week on the show or back during our summer movie preview, I should say, you might have some reservations about multiverse fatigue. I think that's actually something I can go to my local minute clinic and get diagnosed with now. I feel it. Good luck. I hope they can help you with that. No, I'm excited for this one. Of course, the first one was so wonderful. I'm going in very positive. I don't know if I'll be like, I always think of this when I see a new Spider-Man movie, the Chicago critic who will go unnamed wasn't Michael Phillips. I'll say that. But when Sam Raimi's Spider-Man screened, for the press, just rocking back and forth in his chair in anticipation before it even began. Yeah. I won't be doing that before Across the Spider-Verse, but I am excited. I I do want to picture Michael Phillips doing that, though, and I'm going to pretend that it was him in my mind for all time. He, he only does that for Nuri Bilga Jalon films. <laughs> Who's, who should act for my money. I would rather see him take on the MCU at this point than anybody else. But. Oh, no. No, don't do that to him, Michael. No, Come on. Not. Well, just, just so he can make his take the cash out and start making his own movies again, you know. But uh, I, I, I love sure. the – I love the uh, – oh, what's, what's the first film called? The Spider-Verse film. The, for the animated one. Into across. the Spider-Verse. Yeah. I oh, lo- into. Now we're across. <laughs> we're already confused. I just said this and I'm confused. <laughs> this I is love the that. problem with the multiverses. <laughs> There are multiple versions of this show happening at once, and I I hope one of them's really good. <laughs> it isn't this one. As long as the words quantum not and re- our reality, as long as the words quantum and realm do not share the same sentence or title, we're fine. I think with this, we're new, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, in this universe, this version of film spotting, and this seems right. We're going to wrap up our sight and sound top one hundred blind spots marathon with how about this, Michael Edward Yang's. A Brighter Summer Day from 1991, number 78 on the 2022 Sight and Sound Critics Poll list. Number 78, in terms of the greatest films of all time, a blind spot, as all of these films have been in this marathon for myself and Josh. I'm thrilled to finally be catching up with this, but I do have a question for you, Josh, which is, why is it that we just discovered the runtime in our weekly film spotting meeting last Friday, and how did we let this happen exactly? <laughs> the 237-minute runtime? Yeah. I mean, I, I just assume you vet How many days things. is that? I'm it's, sorry, how many days is that? I'm not good at math. You're much more worried about such things, so I don't know how you let this happen. I, I was just depending on you to make a rational choice, but we're going to do it. Maybe just assign, assign a different atom from each multiverse, you know, mm. 45 minutes, okay. somehow all get together and put a report of everyone's opinions, all the atoms. Oh my gosh, I'm terrifying myself right now. I'm going to stop. Yes, you should. For the complete marathon lineup, visit filmspotting.net slash marathons. You can see the past titles. It's been such an incredible marathon. Blind spots for us from that top 100 list. Every film has been 
worth seeing and worth diving into. Some more challenging than others, certainly, but all very good. And I'm sure that we will close out in style with this film from Edward Yang. We'll also have poll results next week. The current poll has us asking about some films currently playing in competition at the Cannes Film Festival. Michael, you said that you had terrible FOMO. You mentioned the Scorsese. We'll see if there's a, another title or two that really, really has you feeling that way. The fest runs through the 26th, so we will not only have poll results next week. We'll be able to tell you, I'm sure you'll have heard it first somewhere, but we'll be able to tell you who the new Palm Door winner was. I don't think they're letting us break that news here on <laughs> Film Spotting. The poll question, which you can vote in at filmspotting.net, is which can 2023 competition film that is not Wes Anderson's Asteroid City are you most excited for? The options we're giving you all, yes, competing for this year's Palm d'Or are About Dry Grasses from none other than director Nuri Bilga Jalan, Fallen Leaves from Finland's Aki Kurismaki, La Chimera from Alice Rohrwacher, Todd Haynes' May December, Hirokazu Koreeda's Monster, Vim Vender's Perfect Days, and lastly, Jonathan Glazer's Zone of Interest. Lastly, except for we will also offer you the option of other. Now, Michael, of those titles, is it the Jaylon? Is it the Glazer? When we posed this question, these movies hadn't screened for anyone yet. So we were really just going off of truly titles and director. That was it. Now we've heard some of the buzz, maybe even read some commentary. What do you think? Which one is the one that you're most excited to see? Well, I've read a bit. I've been waiting for another Jonathan Glazer film since Under the Skin, right? And uh, mm -hmm. uh, and, and so and this is apparently just a, a, a stunning experience by a lot of people's uh, uh, lights and what they've read. I, I love. I can't wait for that. I you know I, the Kurosaki I hear is really really beguiling and uh, Nuri Bilgajelan one of my very favorites out there uh, cannot cut a break in terms of an English language translation of a title because about dry grasses sounds like, sounds like a second city TV parody title of, of an iron curtain nation mm -hmm. in 1971. <laughs> and, and it sounds like a running time of 237 days and uh, yes. not hours uh, and not minutes, but, uh, but I, you know, I, I I love I love the guy's stuff. He, it changed my life as a as a film critic. And the first time I saw his stuff back uh, twenty some about twenty years ago, and um, uh, he, it's uh, <laughs> and and this is a case where the out of competition titles just I mean it's wonderful to hear that the Scorsese film, the Killers of the Flower Moon, a book I'm reading right now, which I'm just kind of blowing through already halfway through, uh, really excellent crime nonfiction. Uh, kind of a tragic, undertold story of a 20th century American greed and corruption, and uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm just eager, eager as hell to see that. So, uh, yeah, no, I got FOMO in every yeah. direction, man. I do love the thought that I hadn't considered. Of course, I'm aware of the phenomenon of English language titles of foreign language films, but I love the notion that maybe there's just this thrilling title for that Jaylon film. Something so much more exciting if you heard the actual Turkish title. One of our listeners there is going to have to write in and tell us what that is. Give us a sense of how scintillating that movie sounds, Michael. 
If you haven't voted yet in our poll, you could go ahead and do some research, read some of those accounts of the reactions to these films and go to filmspotting.net. The poll question is right there on the main page. If you vote and leave a comment, please let us know where you're listening from. Again, filmspotting.net. A quick note about what's happening on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show. Maybe, Adam, my favorite Next Picture Show title <laughs> it of has to all be. time. You know I'm pro-pun. If it's in a title, how about this? Rocket man Namol. Rocket Manimal. <laughs> of course, fitting that we have Michael Phillips here, who was lucky enough to join me for our top five movie manimals, lucky Adam. Uh, you know, you missed out on that, uh, that classic top five. But yeah, they're pairing what I consider the MCU's worst film. Guardians of the Galaxy. Here, here, Josh. Here, here. I agree. Oh, oh. Well, nice to meet you, Michael. Because apparently, (laughs) apparently, we don't know what's happening. But they're pairing it with 1932's The Island of Lost Souls with Charles Lawton and Bela Lugosi. I love that pairing. Don't love volume three, but that's okay. I'm sure they will have a good discussion about both on the next picture show. Your hosts there are Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky, and new episodes post every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. You can get more information at nextpictureshow.net. It is time now for Massacre Theater, and I love it when the schedule lands this way, and we get to bring Michael Phillips in on the fun. Look for a three-person scene. This is, of course, the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance to win a film spotting t-shirt. Before we get to that, let's look at the scene we massacred a couple weeks back. Do you even know where you're going? I'll be honest, I'm a little lost, but, you know, once we get back on the highway, we'll be there soon, don't worry. We better. Shit. Now it's raining. Put on your wipers. What are you talking about? It's just a little mist. Yeah, mist. Hence the mist setting. It's a safety issue, okay? There we go. Thank you, Mr. Wizard. What crawled up your ass? I'm completely on edge right now, man. After all the shit that we've been through tonight, I don't know how much more I can take. That was John Cho and Cal Penn in 2004's Harold and Kumar Go to White Castle, written by John Hurwitz and Hayden Schlossberg, directed by Danny Liner. Along with that massacre, that's when we did review Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. We also had our MCU villains draft. So why that scene from Harold and Kumar Go to White Castle? We really don't have to dive into the feedback too deeply here. You heard it. If you're thinking about Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, you, of course, are thinking of Rocket Raccoon, and I think Cancer Raccoon may be the name of my next band, Josh. So you now (laughs) know why we picked that film. I I think Cancer Raccoon was treated much better than poor little baby Rocket is in Volume 3. Of course you do. Why don't you reach into the sort of brimming film spotting hat and pick out this week's winner, Josh? That would be Rob Shames from Cary, North Carolina. Congratulations, Rob. Email feedback at filmspotting.net and we will set you up with your very own film spotting t-shirt or film spotting tote bag. Would the detour so simple? 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 My dear boy, why do you say that? Why do you say twer? Well, you should say it like I said it. We move on now to this week's edition of Massacre Theater. A few hints. There are no raccoons cancerous or otherwise in this scene 
There is an animal. There is an animal. I do think it can't be that tough. I mean, Walter Brennan only made like, what, 95 films, Michael? And you always do Walter Brennan here on the show. So just go to his IMDb. No, and you're set. There's no, I'm just trying to go through my mantra for this particular scene you've given me. There's no small parts. There's only small actors. Only no That's small right. <laughs> That's right. This, I think, is a first in the history of film spotting where there will be a bleep, multiple bleeps, in mm. fact, but it won't involve any profanity. No, that's true. We're hiding a significant clue. Yes, a very significant clue. So I think I think we know our parts. And Josh, you're going to start it off. So I'm going to give you the action. Are you ready? And action. Evening, Max. Gary? Annie? Hello there. Hi, Gary. Just checking the mail. Oh, yeah? Some people check it earlier in the day, but there's always a risk that the mail carrier hasn't come yet this spares me the chance of a futile trip to the mailbox uh-huh plus it allows bastion here an opportunity to urinate you have a good one any plans for this evening nope perhaps a we're just gonna stay in just the two of us mm-hmm, mm-hmm. boring i see I do hope you keep me in mind for any future. Well, you bet. I've always enjoyed the camaraderie of good friends competing in games of chance and skill. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll we'll, we'll do that. Uh, tonight's just the two of us. Three bags of Tostito scoops, I notice. And, and scene. scene. Mercifully. Are we done? Yeah, we're done. Josh, I... I didn't know you were going to play it as Hal. (laughs) Well, that might have been. That might have been the actor's original inspiration. You never know. Maybe so. If you know what film we really did just brutally massacre, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. The deadline is Monday, June 5th. We will select the winner randomly from all the correct entries and announce it in a couple of weeks. You come here thinking there is a way out of this world for you, Mr. Wick. Or is not. The Centre Pompidou. Sacre Coeur. The sounds of John Wick Chapter 4 help get us back into, we're going to ease back into our top five films of the year so far by mentioning the results of Sam Van Hogren, our producer, his very scientific Twitter poll question. He wanted to know, is John Wick Chapter 4 the best film of the year so far? The options were a definitive yes, I guess so, I like it but no, or no, blank is, and of course you could then write in your choice. So we do have an additional poll question this week. Josh, how did it come out? Only 21% of those who responded said a definitive yes, that John Wick Chapter 4 is the best film of the year so far. I guess so, 15% went with that. I like it but no, 37%, which was the majority We also heard from this group, 28% said no, and then fill in the blank is. We do still have two choices left each, but it seems as if we're heading to a world where John Wick Chapter 4 is not on any of our lists. But Josh, you did suggest last week that maybe just despite me, you were going to find room for it. Did not find room for it, but I do have it on my honorable mentions right now. It's my number eight film of the year, Adam. 
Our longtime listener and friend Russ Bratton says, Wick 4 is top three for me so far, but I'd have How to Blow Up a Pipeline and maybe Bo is Afraid ahead of it. Another pick for How to Blow Up a Pipeline from Florian Francois. Also, Florian mentioned Blackberry. Maria Gonzalez says, It's Bo is Afraid, then showing up, then John Wick Chapter 4. We also heard from Brady Larson. John Wick 4 kicks ass, but he met his match in Margaret, it's the year's first five-star film, and it joins Paddington 2 and Marcel the Shell with Shoes On in the recent pantheon of kindness masterpieces. Couple more for Margaret. Ian T. McFarland says, Margaret Hive, stand up. And Josh Newby says, are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. And, unpopular opinion, knock at the cabin. Here's Ofer Liebergall, who said, so far, several great documentaries. 20 Days in Maripal may not be the best, but it's a must-see. That is one I am completely unfamiliar with. Thank you for that recommendation. Ofer, finally, Brendan Hodges says Past Lives by Some Distance. Now, one of the three of us has seen Past Lives. We'll leave it at that. The other two of us have to wait until it opens here in Chicago on June 9th. And with that, let's go ahead and get back to our list. Our five favorite films of the year so far. We have two choices left. And Michael, is this a perfect transition? Is Past Lives there at number two, or are you going to surprise us here? I'm going to surprise you, but it, we've uh, since we've already uh, sung the the virtues of "Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret." I'm just going to keep keep mine short. I mean, we've we've uh, you know we all love it. It, it. it does frustrate me, frankly. I know Josh is blithely unconcerned with the economics of the current movie <laughs> scene, but uh, and and you know I'm not the fact that it didn't find a bigger audience. If you actually break it down, the explanation is there. It's not. It doesn't have the stuff that your average 15 to 20-year-old of of any type is going to feel like it's a must-go. It just doesn't have the audience quadrants covered, really. It has, I, I, you know, I think there are people who grew up with these books who were, you know, certainly parents and possibly grandparents now themselves, but they're not really storming the gates of the theaters yet, if they ever will. Um they're going to, as, as you said, Josh, they're going to discover it streaming at home uh, when the time comes. And I think I just think they're in for a much better. It's just like the, the director's previous film, The Edge of Seventeen, which didn't really get the, pop, the popular audience it deserved either. I think, and this sounds cynical, I think this is nothing but an indication of her quality. <laughs> I think the fact that she treats adolescents uh, 17 years old in the, in the previous picture and younger here, she treats young, uh, the, the world of young women, young girls, you know, as just trying to navigate their way through difficulties uh, in, in a way that doesn't work like the average movie or, or, I don't know. I just really, sometimes I think it sounds cynical to say, well, yeah, it didn't make, it didn't make much money. It's too good. I, I think there's some truth in it sometimes, and this is the case. I just think the performances alone, uh, Forts and McAdams, uh, the fact that the, the movie ends with this really stunningly uh, faithful to the book scene, uh, you know, mother, daughter going through a um, kind of a milestone moment together um, in the bathroom upstairs at the house uh, in New Jersey, and that, and the movie has the, the sense and the guts to just end it right there, not give you a big whoop-de-doo ending on top of it or anything. I, I, I just, I, it was one of those hold your breath moments where it's like, they're not going to mess up anything in this movie. You know? <laughs> yeah. And they didn't. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I've only seen it once and I'm, I'm certainly up for another viewing. 
Yeah, it's so perfectly handled. And there's no pandering is what you're getting at, Michael. And I think that can, you know, the pandering sometimes will get you the bigger box office. It'll give you the lowest common denominator and potentially the wider audiences. That's not what's going on here. And so it might find a smaller group, but a group that is going to really treasure yeah. this film. It's weird because I prefer pandering, but that's but in this case, it, yeah, I didn't need it. <laughs> didn't work. Didn't didn't work for you. Yeah. All right. My number two is going to be a film I did discuss earlier on the show. Another Golden Brick. Sounds like a really strong year already for Golden Brick nominees. Adam, it's Skinamarink, this incredibly low budget horror feature debut from writer director Kyle Edward Ball pretty much consists of these grainy static shots that give us strangely angled views of various rooms in a house. The light we get comes from these flickering television screens, maybe a nightlight, and we're following these two young siblings who wake up, find their father missing. We never see their face. Most of the times we see them like from the knees down as they're scurrying around the house, asking what's going on. This is, as I described it when I first talked about it, as if the Blair Witch Project had been simmered alongside Poltergeist in a pot of slow cinema. That sounds like hell to some people. It was entrancing to me the way Kyle Edward Ball is using the form to unnerve us, destabilize us in a way that goes far deeper than just a fear of the dark. This is about the fear of abandonment. Maybe because of divorce, maybe because of death, maybe some other circumstance. It's about children or all of us fearing that we're going to lose a parent or someone close to us and the way the world is upended when that happens. That was my experience with the film. I know that it seems to work in one of two ways. People have had similar experiences and they've connected it to different fears or unnerving experiences in their own life, but they've been moved by it or people who can barely make it through the thing. I mean, you talk about a movie that had no shot in the theater. There's always a story for everyone who goes to see it and even enjoys it. There's a story of someone else in their theater who walked out in a huff or threw their arms up as the guy did in my screening afterwards, just deeply angry that they spent time and money on Skinamarink. For me, it was both incredibly well spent to the point that it's my number two film of the year so far. It's one I will finally need to force myself to catch up with, Josh, as it is a Golden Brick nominee already, as you mentioned. So I'll get to it, though I'm worried. It's got I'm an worried. uphill battle with you. I know it. I know it does. Yeah, I may I may have even started it, Josh, fully expecting to finish it. And then oh, getting, you can't do that. You can't do that. And then getting that. distracted. Well, I can if all of a sudden I have family matters to tend to. It wasn't by choice, but that was my experience. And that's the unfortunate part, right, of not being in the theater where you can be yeah. you can yep. be trapped with the film. And I, I already No, you gotta be it, trapped. You gotta be trapped with this one. That's a good way to describe it. I'm I'm all of I think ten minutes into the film. So I get to start completely over, Josh. Okay. Good. We'll we'll see where it takes me. My number two film so far is one that's already been mentioned. It was your number three, I believe. Suzume from Makoto oh wonderful Shinkai. I think I saw the last screening of this in the city this past Sunday before it stopped playing here in yeah. Chicago. Two fifteen matinee took Sophie Quinn and Connor and Shinkai went four for four with the Kempinar family. I think Great. it's a good thing probably that I'm unencumbered by 
experiences, past experiences with Shinkai's other work. I did miss Weathering with you. Really want to see it. I did see and really like your name, but if I'm being honest, I don't I don't recall very much about it. We didn't talk about it as I reflect on it. I don't think we reviewed it on the show. But any criticism I've seen around this movie at all, and I think it's got a 90-something on Rotten Tomatoes, so it's not like there's a lot of negativity, but any negativity I've seen has all been along the lines of, well, it's pretty great, but it's too similar structurally to his other work, or it's just hmm. not quite as powerful as his other work. I can't weigh in on that, and I, I, I don't care, because what I got with Suzume was definitely powerful enough, and it's this drama about the intersection of personal and national trauma. You mentioned it, Josh, right? Like, you think about as you're watching it, you can't help but think about Japan's history with major tragedies and disasters, but mm -hmm. I picked up on this detail somewhere in the film, even though I couldn't remember the exact context. And then my 15 year old son, who's much more <laughs> geopolitically plugged in and intelligent than I am, filled me in on it, but it's directly referencing March 11th, 2011 and the giant earthquake that hit and the yeah. tsunami that followed. Right. So it's a very specific disaster, even though we certainly are thinking about those others. And I think that's intended as well, but it's, it's also a coming of age story. It's a love story. And you said it, it's a movie that features a walking, talking three-legged chair and a talking big eyed cat <laughs> that you are sure is evil and up to something sinister the whole time, except that every single time it said, Suzume, I wanted to give it a hug. You can't resist it. No, and I'm allergic to cats. Resist it. I am too. I hope to see this movie again and we can really explore what makes the animation here so good. But the, the depth of the detail, the grandeur of it is something to behold. And I was just so stirred by the conceit of these pending disasters all emanating from these gates that have been developed on sites that were once joyful places where people congregated. Like you, yeah. you mentioned that maybe they had been deserted at one point and probably during one of these tragedies they had to be. But I also think, and this is why I need to see it again, I also think that Shinkai is getting at something even more basic than that. These are places where people gathered and they they provided little pleasures schools amusement parks those kinds of places and they're they're shutting down and i think it's both a, a very direct metaphor and one that's multi-layered and every time the movie invoked the ghosts if you will yes. of those locations i got emotional yeah, there's that's there's that motif where as they're trying to shut these doors part of the process of doing that is to listen to and hear the voices of the people who were once in those spaces. So I think you're right. That's an incredibly important through line that adds another emotional layer to what is going on here. That brings us to our top films of the year so far. Michael, what do you have? Oh, easy one for me. And I bet it's going to stay in my top three by the end of the year. I mean, if it, if it gets kicked out, then it means there's serious quality coming, but it's uh, it's Past Lives, written and directed by Celine Song, her feature debut. She's a playwright uh, whose story, whose own personal story has been sort of rethought uh, and uh, uh, for for this fictional character we meet, um, uh, Nora, played by Greta Lee. And it's, it's essentially 
um, 24 years in the life of this Korean girl who we meet first at the age of 12, and we see her and her sort of childhood sweetheart saying goodbye to each other as her family is about to move to North America. Um, and and then we pick up Nora uh, when she reconnects with uh, this, this man um, via Skype. Uh, and and it's it's an emotional relationship, not a not a physical one. They never quite get that. Uh, I guess you'd say a telltale reunion together. Nobody gets on a plane to see the other one. Um, and then the movie jumps ahead another twelve years to the time where she's married uh, in New York to another writer, as she is. And then um, where the movie goes from there brings all three of these characters. Uh, the man from Seoul and this married couple together in uh, a way that sort of has gotten people describing everything from, or comparing it to, I should say, everything from Brief Encounter to uh, the film Weekend to, um, in a very, very low-key way, a, a film uh, with a very different emotional impact. But but this one hit me just about as hard. Uh, John Kearney's Once, you know. Uh, it's just stunningly good. And... And to see Greta Lee, get a, who's great in all kinds of comedy and, you know, has done television, everything from uh, Russian Doll to The Morning Show, uh, this is uh, this is the kind of role we, we just haven't seen her do. And it's it, it basically requires so little external acting that it all just kind of goes behind the eyes and in the pauses. And I, I just loved it. I loved it. And... Uh, I'm eager to hear what you guys think when, when you see it, but it's opening soon here in Chicago and all over the place. So uh, I hope people go past lives. Yeah, this is one we are so eager to see, Michael, that we were talking about even pushing back the date for doing the show. You know, should we make sure that we can see it and possibly include it? So I'm glad that you were able to do that and we can give it some early love here on our list. All right. My number one is a movie that's opening, speaking of fresh films, this weekend. It's You Hurt My Feelings from writer-director Nicole Holofcener, a favorite of mine for many years, and I think this one is very close to a movie that made my top 10 list when it came out, Enough Said. And a key component there, Holofcener's Enough Said, also starred Julia Louis-Dreyfus. So I think we have here one of our most underrated filmmakers working at the height of her incisive observational powers and doing it right alongside her her strongest on-screen collaborator. I just love what she brings out in Julia Louis-Dreyfus. Here she stars as Beth, a published author who's struggling to find a path forward with her second book. And Beth thinks that her husband, played by Tobias Menzies from The Crown, is very supportive of this book, thinks it's great, doesn't understand why she's having trouble with it, why her agent is a little hesitant about it. Then Beth overhears him saying to a friend that actually he doesn't quite like the manuscript either, uh, but he just can't bring himself to say that to her face. This rocks her world. And I know this sounds like small stakes for a movie. It sounds like sitcom stakes, right? But when you have someone as intuitive about interpersonal relationships as Whole of Center, doing the writing, and you have someone like Julia Louis-Dreyfus playing the part, they're going to deliver this very wise comedic drama that really touches on the necessary lives that we tell each other 
and we tell ourselves. The movie expands also to include a larger cast of characters from her husband, Don, to her sister, played by Michaela Watkins, her sister's husband, who recently gets fired from a play, played by Arian Moyed. And all of these characters in this privileged world, that's one of the things Hall of Center is criticized for, is right? She sets her stories in these privileged worlds. They're all taken down a peg a little bit in midlife and have to reevaluate things. And the gentle but honest truth with which the movie explores that is something I treasure. You've also got Jeannie Berlin, the great Jeannie Berlin in here as Beth's mom, David Cross and Amber Tamblin. Um, as two of Don's patients uh, in his therapist's office nearly steal the movie. Their scenes are so funny. Hall of Sunner has always been funny to me, but this one opens like gangbusters with four or five big laughs right from the start. And then it just becomes more and more sophisticated from there. I really hope that Julia Louis-Dreyfus gets some Oscar attention for this. It didn't happen for her with Enough Said or with her equally excellent co-star at the time, the late James Gandolfini. Love to see it happen this time. It's absolutely deserving. It's a film that's maybe going to be considered too small, again, by Oscar voters. But who cares about that? I hope audiences go out to see this, embrace it, because they will have a wonderful time with You Hurt My Feelings. Love seeing those two back together. My favorite Hall of Center film, Enough Said by A Ways. So knowing that this one delivered for you as well, Josh, is incredibly promising. But I'm going to take that pair of Hall of Center and Julie Louis-Dreyfus, and I'm going to raise you Kelly Reichert and Michelle Williams. <laughs> Already mentioned by you, Michael, showing up on your list. Well, I've got it all the way up at number one. I think that showing up is the most sneakily funny and moving film of the year. And I'll get into a little bit what I mean by moving there specifically. But as you touched on with the plot here, Michael, Michelle Williams plays a Portland, Oregon-based sculptor who's just trying to get through the week leading up to a showing of her latest work. You talked about the stresses that she has in her life. She just has to navigate her day job working for her mom at the art school slash commune that her mom runs, the lack of hot water, in her apartment and the seeming indifference of her landlord, friend, and fellow artist, Joe, who's played by Hong Chow. And the pigeon. The pigeon. The pigeon, the, the, <laughs> the pigeon with a busted wing she suddenly finds herself tending to. The mental breakdown her brother is having. What else? Oh, you know, it's not as big of a deal, but the couple who are mooching off her goofy, self-obsessed dad, played by Judd Hirsch. Biggest thing. She isn't actually done with her sculptures yet. She's she's dealing with all of that and still trying to get the work done and cramming it in at the last minute, like I'm sure a lot of great artists do. In less assured and skillful hands, and I, I mean the pun there as we're talking about a movie about sculpting, less assured hands than Reichert and her co-screenwriter here, John Raymond, and of course, Williams as the conduit for all this. These scenarios could almost all play out like a loud screwball comedy. Thankfully, it's it's a much quieter, more observant movie that asks us to quietly observe. The silences, the sighs, they all express something here, just like every little smash of clay does. And I knew that Richard Brody from The New Yorker was a huge fan of this film. He just wrote a blurb about it, at least that's all I saw. But I, I wanted to get his take on the movie, and he said 
amid her efforts to be both a good person and a good artist, talking about William's character, her gruff and terse candor is a bulwark against frustration and distraction. Working with the cinematographer Christopher Blovell, Reichert films as if in a state of rapt attention, reserving her keenest ardor and inspiration for the art itself. As Lizzie sculpts and assembles and glazes and even just ponders, the film's visual contemplations seem to get deep into Lizzie's creative soul. I don't know what I'm supposed to do without hot water. My show's open on Friday. I'll be free to deal with it after that. I have a show too, you know. You're not the only one with a deadline. I know, but I have two shows, which is insane. Hey, give me a push. That idea of Williams being someone who's trying to be a good person, that's there throughout this entire film. But this is not an all caps, a good person movie. And that's partly because Kelly Riker doesn't work in all caps ever. And I could be making a dig at another 2023 movie here because there was a movie called A Good Person by Zach Braff, but I didn't see that movie. So no, I'm not taking a shot at it. I am praising how how subtly showing up explores that central question. And I, I said it was sneakily moving, and it's not so much because the movie hits on any particularly heavy emotional terrain, but just because of the number of questions like that that the movie leaves you with. And I know we've talked about it for a while here on the show, came out in early April. Michael, we reviewed it very favorably, obviously, and heard from Kelly Reichert about the film, but it's gone from theaters, hasn't hit VOD or, or DVD yet, but hopefully people are excited to see it. I'm a little afraid of the expectations being too high for this film because it it can seem like such a small little movie. We've both used the word quiet to describe it, but, but it's a film that you see it again. I I just think the experience gets richer and richer. Yeah. It's not like you have to adjust your expectations downward. You just have to take them sideways, you know, and, and just, just, you know, I I mean, I'm a great believer in sort of uh, the right chemical approach to any movie. And I mean, just, this is not something to see, uh, you know, at nine thirty after a glass of wine at night, it's it's not something. I don't think it's something to see after th- t- two shots of espresso at nine a.m. Either it's just somewhere in the middle. Yeah, <laughs> but but it also helps. You have to have some temperamental and maybe emotional entryway with the kind of stories and the way they're told um, that Kelly Reichardt is is. It's why most of us can't wait for the new Kelly Reichardt film. Not everybody. That's so. right. You mentioned first Cal working with John Raymond there on that. John Majaro, the star of that film. That's one I really loved. Had as my number two film at the end of 2019. I liked it so much. And I do feel like this is a, a little tick below right now, as you put it. But that's also a film. And this is something we can dive into another time, especially because I really have totally half-baked thoughts on it. But this is one of those Reichert films that is about a lot of big things that we can unpack, but is really just about this artist and her interpersonal relationships and her relationship to her work. At its core, that's what it's about. And you get that with movies like First Cow as well. It's about the the friendship and all those things. But of course, it's also about other things like Meek's Cutoff. Those are films. There are films that Reichert makes that are just as small and just as intimate, I should say, but take on much larger ramifications. Showing up is one that maybe doesn't fit into that same scheme with a film like Meek's Cutoff or First Cow. It's not it's not about America, quote unquote, but it's it's still about a lot of really fascinating things. 
Well, it's, it's one of her short story films. That's how I've described it. Whereas Meek's Cutoff and First Cow are novels. They have the scope. They have the setting of a novel. And I think what Showing Up does, and this is what makes it wonderful, and I'm with you both. It's, it's my number six, so almost made my list. It argues for the equal value of an effort like this because it's about the effort. It's about the time spent making Showing Up more than it is about showing up. And I also appreciated greatly the way the title works, and I can't get into this too much without spoiling the ending, but it is, yes, obviously, about showing up to do the work, as I was just talking about, because it's the artistic process that has as much value as the artistic result or how that result is received. But this movie sticks with me still after seeing it for some time because of that, yes, quiet, but deeply moving climax and the way we understand what showing up means there in the context of Lizzie and the people around her. This is a very difficult character who is not deserving of things that she receives. We would say, most viewers would say, she's not deserving of things she receives at the end of this movie. And just the incredible grace involved in that is what makes, again, this movie kind of last for me and makes it more far richer than what any description of the plot might suggest. I'll, I'll say this, too. The one thing that that uh, the second time through, that did hit me that it, it is saying something about a vanished way of contemporary life. I mean, I mean, Reichert, mm-hmm. when I talked to her, talked about this Portland, this artistic community in Portland, Oregon, as completely past tense. It is gone. You know, it's yeah. filmed in a and that that school. Yeah, the really school the down. school literally closed down, and then they reopened it yeah. for the purposes of the film, which is kind of a wonderful, uh, you know, uh, victory lap for the school. Or I don't know if it's a victory or not, but but it's also just uh, the affordable middle class artist's life. That's not Portland anymore, from what I hear. Certainly, from what Riker told me, and every city about the size of Portland on up in this country. Not every city, many cities that not many years ago were affordable places for people to just, you know, kind of strive and, you know, blindly stumble and maybe purposefully work their way while working a second job toward whatever kind of artist they want to be. That is not happening as easily right now. Uh, and so it's, it's a funny, there's nothing harder to capture on film, interestingly, than the very recent past. And that's exactly what she's done here. Those are our top five films of 2023 so far. We've heard a lot of honorable mentions along the way. We have a lot of crossover in our choices. Are there any films that have not been mentioned yet that you guys would like to highlight? I mean, I'm looking at my list right now, and Rye Lane came up. Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. Blackberry came up, a choice from a listener in listener feedback. The only other one I'll throw out is another film I just caught up with this past week, Sisu, the crazy movie, here's the plot description, about an ex-soldier who discovers gold in the Lapland wilderness tries to take the loot into the city. Nazi soldiers led by a brutal SS officer battle him. This old man finds gold and then spends the rest of the movie fending off and brutally killing Nazis. It, I think, is from the producers, somebody associated with John Wick is associated with this film as well. I saw that in the in the credits or in the title somewhere and you know what? It makes total sense. It's got the 
it's got the violent elegance of the first John Wick. So I was on board with Sisu, the Finnish film from Jalmari Helander. Any picks for you, Josh? Yeah, as I mentioned, I do have John Wick chapter four in the number eight slot right now, showing up at six. Uh, and just two titles I'll mention quickly that haven't come up on the show at all, I think, Adam, yet this year. Dungeons & Dragons, Honor Among Thieves. I had to check it out because of who made it. The guys behind Game Night seemed like a strange move after Game Night. And yet this movie, while being, I think, respectful, I've never played Dungeons & Dragons, but I felt a respect for the mythology or myth building that is central to that experience in this while still having a ton of fun and getting a ton of laughs. Really enjoyed my time with Dungeons and Dragons Honor Among Thieves. And then one that I was meaning to catch for a while, this list forced me to do it. It's number 10 right now on my list of the best of the year so far. Ennis Maine. It comes from British filmmaker Mark Jenkin takes place on this uninhabited island off the Cornish coast, set in 1973, follows a, a wildlife volunteer who's observing this rare flower and turns into a psychological horror, I think you could describe it as, though nothing incredibly graphic or very, very clearly explained <laughs> happens. This is uh, in a surreal experience, the filmmaking itself. It did force me to catch up with Jenkins' original film, his first film, his debut, Bait. And that even more so reminded me of David Lynch's Eraserhead. It's in black and white. That helps. This is in color, but there are still elements in terms of the editing, the use of surreal juxtaposition that reminds me of Lynch's work too. So at any rate, the new film this year, Ennis Main, it's actually spelled E-N-Y-S-M-E-N. If you want to track that down. God, I got to see that. Thank you. Thank you for the Dungeons and Dragons. I had the best. I saw that two days ago and that I oh, got good. I got so much more satisfaction out of that film than, you know, some some films that, you know, I don't think are slovenly or anything like John Wick 4. Because I really like John Wick 3. And that was mainly the reason I was disappointed in John Wick 4 because it was just too bloated for me, I thought. But um I mean, Dungeons and Dragons has more wit and a better spirit and just a good visual yeah. style. And then, yeah. then, my God, anything, any 10 seconds in Guardians of the Galaxy 3 or, you know, Ant Man 3 or any, any huge IP franchise, I, I've certainly seen in the last six months. So, you know, that's definitely anything my, with a three in it. What's that? Anything with a three in it. It's better than I, exactly. Is what exactly. You're so, yeah. Okay. No, all the way with that. And I, I, I can just throw in a couple other ones and it would be my top 10 or 12. Uh, but there's a couple of really good French films, other people's children and full time, really interesting kind of Dardan brothers type thriller, both excellent infinity pool, Brandon Cronenberg's twisted thriller, uh, I don't know if it really hangs together. I haven't seen it a second time to determine that, but I sure was gripped by the first viewing, even with all the problems. Uh, I really like Blackberry. Uh, with, to me, that's the uh, uh, product uh, startup and then collapse movie that I was kind of waiting for with Air for some reason. I don't know why I was rooting for Nike to not succeed with the shoe because I knew they did, but, but uh, Blackberry just was more my speed. Um, and I really like this film that did very well at Sundance called A Thousand and One by A.V. Rockwell with uh, Tiana Taylor. And it, it covers, you know, many years in the life of this uh, uh, woman living in Harlem and uh, a very complicated family 
saga, but but that's a film that really has a lot to say about gentrification in New York uh, in a in a completely intriguing dramatic structure. Um, some issues a little bit here and there, but I, I thought that film just moment to moment was really it was a rough experience, but a really good one. And so I mean, look, you add them all up, uh, throw in a Dungeons and Dragons, and you know. I know everything is crazy and the industry is falling apart and there's a strike on and it's all going to hell. But uh, these films that represent really the last 18 months, two years worth of production, you know, that's a good start. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to, I'm happy to see these. And I got at least six or eight uh, thanks to you guys uh, to catch up on. Our lists again of our favorite films of the year so far. You can find that full list at filmspotting.net. Just click on lists right there at the top of the page. And we'd love to hear your picks or any other comments about the show. Feedback at filmspotting.net. That is our show. If you'd like to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Letterboxd, Adam is at Filmspotting and I'm at Larson on Film. Michael, where can listeners keep up with your work right well, now? Well, they should, not just can, they should keep up with the work every week on WFMT, Classical WFMT, WFMT.com for the weekly Saturday morning, 9 a.m. soundtrack film music program. I do the kickoff segment on that every week, which is uh, great fun just to kind of be poking around. Uh, finding music that hasn't been overplayed to death, um, which is easy. We're going several years into the show, and uh, it's it's been wonderful to discover new things from old composers and new. So that's uh, that's that's their best bet for that. Fantastic. Well, thanks for joining us. Always good to have you on the show. Listeners, if you would like t-shirts or other merch, you can go to filmspotting.net slash shop. And we want to remind you, Film Spotting is listener supported. You can join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com. For as little as five bucks a month, you can listen to the show early. You can get it ad-free. Plus, you get a weekly newsletter from our producer, Sam Van Hogren, as well as monthly bonus shows. We're about to record May's bonus show tonight with guest Brett Merriman, who is the winner of the Film Spotting Family Madness Bracket Challenge. His prize hanging out with us late at night, I guess, yeah. <laughs> online. Congratulations, Brett. We are going to do a 1998 draft with categories yes. I will discover what that means live on air. <laughs> oh, my goodness. You mean to tell me you really have not done any prep? Adam, when did we decide this? Like 24 hours ago? Josh, 48, you are, 48 you're in tops. Trouble. You're oh, in trouble. I know That's, I'm in trouble. <laughs> you are in severe trouble, and I'm going to enjoy every second of it, as will our listeners. In addition to those monthly bonus shows, and I do want to note that Michael got a film spotting T-shirt as payment for his appearance on this show. So you don't come away empty handed when you're on film spotting. In addition to those monthly bonus shows, you also could have access to the complete film spotting archive. And if you go back through it, you will find lots of wonderful appearances from Michael Phillips over the years, including I think every single top 10 list countdown going back to 2007. That's film spotting family. Dot com. In wide release, you can see About My Father, the new one starring Robert De Niro as an immigrant hairdresser father meeting his son's future in-laws for the first time. His son is Sebastian Maniscalco. Kandahar, this is Gerard Butler as an undercover CIA operative who must fight his way out of hostile territory. How else do you get out of hostile territory? Disney's live action, The Little Mermaid. No, Josh, it's not directed by Sofia Coppola. Sorry, mm. but it is finally out. And... 
your number one film of the year so far. Nicole Hall of Center's You Hurt My Feelings. Everybody needs to go see that in limited release. And right now it's very limited. I think it's opening just at the Quad Cinema in New York. So I'll probably hold some thoughts on it for its expansion. And there is a national expansion that's expected to follow. But a little doc called Close to Vermeer about this big retrospective in Amsterdam of the famous Dutch artist's work and that whole exhibition being put together. That documentary is open this weekend at the Quad Cinema. So wanted to note that because I did see it and I do recommend it. Next week here on Film Spotting, we will take a look at Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse and we'll get to all 237 minutes. Can't wait. Of Edward Yang's A Brighter Summer Day that will close out our sight and sound Top 100 Marathon. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistants are Betty Lavendero and Veronica Phillips. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.